All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a hell of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Hey, welcome to the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor. And yes, humility eludes me when I have the microphone in front of me because I got to boast about the Rodcast. And this week, we have got another fantastic episode worth boasting about. We have got Matthew L. Miller the in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio this week. Matt is the author of Fishing Through the Apocalypse and Angler's Adventures in the 21st Century. He is also the Director of Science Communication for the Nature Conservancy and the editor of the Cool Green Science blog. And we're going to talk conservation, fish, and policy this week. And after Matt Miller and I chat, I'll take a bourbon break, and I'll take a sip or two from a bottle of Chestnut Farms bourbon. And since last week, during last week's episode, I counted down my top 10 favorite instructional fishing books, this week, I'm going to take a look at my top 10 all-time favorite devotional books. That is the books that tell fishing stories. Hey, speaking of fishing stories, I have got a great fishing story for you to kick off this week's episode. Now, a while back, I was fishing with my buddy, and we had the boat pulled up next to a bridge, and we were casting plugs for snook around the bridge pilings. As we sat there casting and chatting, a funeral procession drove across the bridge. And my buddy fell silent, took off his hat. He held it across his heart and he lowered his head in respect. When the trail of cars had passed, he put his hat back on and he went back to casting. I looked at him and I said, man, I did not expect that kind of a reaction out of you for a passing funeral. My buddy looked me dead in the eye and he says, well, it was the least I could do. After all, I was married to her for 30 years. Hey, that reminds me, too, of this one time I was night fishing from the bank of a river. And across the river, on the opposite side, on the bank, all the way on the other side of the river, there was a group of fellows from Florida State over there fishing. Well, I was catching fish, one after the other, and they weren't. And I could tell that they were getting frustrated. So one of those fellows hollers across the river, hey, what are you using to catch all those fish? And I holler back, it's not what I'm using, it's where I'm fishing. Everyone knows that that side of the river is all fouled up and the fish are always on this side of the river. There's a quiet spell and I know they're discussing it. Well, how do we get to that side? There's not a bridge for miles around, they yell back across. So feeling sorry for these runts from FSU, I holler back through the dark. Well, listen, I'll turn on my flashlight and you fellas can walk across on the beam of light. After a few moments of silence, and I know they're talking about it, they holler back, yeah, right, we're not that dumb. We'd get halfway across, and you'll turn off that light. Gotta love them boys from FSU. Oh, and as a public service announcement, do be careful when driving through Tallahassee and keep your windows rolled up, because if your window is rolled down, someone might just throw a diploma in it. 
All right, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, my listening crew, I have to say that I am very excited about this week's guest on the Rodcast because I am honored to have Matthew L. Miller in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio this week. Matt is the author of one of the absolute best fishing books that I have read recently, and that's Fishing Through the Apocalypse and Angler's Adventures in the 21st Century. And it was undoubtedly the book that energized me to invite Matt to be a guest on the Rodcast. And in fact, since I read Fishing Through the Apocalypse, I was actually asked to write an article about American fishing literature. And it dawned on me that Matt's book is exemplary of a newer kind of fishing literature. You see, we've traditionally identified fishing literature in two categories. And I think that William Humphrey in his fantastic book, My Moby Dick, explains it best when he writes, and this is a quote from Humphrey, the literature of angling falls in two genres, the instructional and the devotional. The former is written by fishermen who write and the latter by writers who fish. But I think that beginning in the late 20th century, as conservation ethics became important to the larger fishing conversation, we started to get a third category, what I would call conservational literature. And Fishing Through the Apocalypse is a wonderful synthesis of the devotional and the conservational, with some undertones of the instructional. And so, after having read Fishing Through the Apocalypse, I had to ask Matt to join me on the Rodcast. Now, a quick bit of background about Matt Miller. He is Director of Science Communications for the Nature Conservancy and editor of the Cool Green Science blog. He covers conservation stories from around the world. And prior to taking up this role at the Nature Conservancy, for 11 years, he served as Director of Communication for the Nature Conservancy's Idaho program, which focuses on tackling the biggest conservation issues in Idaho. In 2019, he was honored with the Outdoor Writers Association of America's Highest Conservation Writing Award, the Jade Award. And as we learn in reading Fishing Through the Apocalypse, he is both a dedicated hunter and a fanatic angler. And from my perspective, Fishing Through the Apocalypse is one of the smartest, most informative fishing books to have been published in at least the last decade, if not longer. And I am thoroughly honored to have Matthew L. Miller here today. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Rodcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and, and double thanks for those kind words. Well, I... I'm not going to bring you in and then give bad words in the introduction, right? So, so in your book, you offer some glimpses into your fishing origin story and some hints about how and why fishing became such a prominent part of your life, both personally and professionally. But to get things started here, let's start with that origin story. Could you tell us a bit about the Matt Miller's introduction to fishing and what drives the passion and why you turn that passion into a career focused on conservation, specifically fishing conservation? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and in some ways it's a pretty typical story. You know, I, I grew up in a family of hunters and anglers in rural central Pennsylvania, and I was surrounded by woods and creeks to explore. But for me, I think in a lot of ways, it was really that desire to be among wild things. I mean, it was never just about the fishing and hunting. I always had this almost a naturalist eye from the time I was a small kid. I wanted to know about these wild creatures deeply and intimately. And I think fishing is one of the best ways to do that with underwater creatures. And so 
I always was driven by this desire to know more and see what's over the next ridge or around the next bend in the creek. So how did you translate that into career then? Uh, I mean, you, obviously, you, if I remember correctly, you went to Penn State and from there started doing the writing. Uh, talk about how you mo how you got fishing and conservation to motivate career. Yeah, you know, one thing that people have always said about me is I've always known what I wanted to do. And that was true probably from the time I was in the third grade when I wrote my first conservation essay for a class project. And by the time I was ju in junior high, I was writing outdoor and conservation stories for the class paper. Um, so I, I always have been a voracious reader too. I, I started reading outdoor life when I think it was in first or second grade um, and just read everything I could on the topic. And so I wanted to, focus on nature and the outdoors and write about it from the time I was a small kid. And, you know, I won't say that never wavered. I actually started my career writing about performing arts, um, but which supplied me with a lot of great experience and like how to write about things you aren't familiar with. But that ultimate goal was always there. Yeah, believe me, I, of all people, understand that completely. So tell us a bit about your role with Nature Conservancy and what a director of science communication does. Well, right now, my, my main focus is running the Nature Conservancy's online magazine, Cool Green Science, which covers conservation and science stories that our organization works on around the globe. And uh, the Nature Conservancy has a million members. We have projects in all 50 states and more than 60 countries around the world. So I get to cover the best of that work uh, wherever it is. But I also um, want to connect to our members' passions, which happens to be, you know, coincide with mine. So it's birding and fishing and enjoying nature right outside their window. So I try to, to bring that to them and help them understand the natural world better. Man, I have to say that there are a lot of folks out there, and I count myself at the top of that list, who are very much jealous of that kind of a career. I mean, to have the opportunity to travel around the world and observe and witness and then to write about those places with the intent of protecting wild places, that's the dream job to me right there. Um, I guess you're living the real-life iteration of Traveling Matt. Do you remember Traveling Matt from... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that to me is 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 the dream job to just travel around the world. Um, yeah, for those of you not in the know, traveling Matt is from Fraggle Rock. I'm I'm geeking out here again. So, so like I said in my introduction to this conversation, I was blown away by fishing through the apocalypse. I've read it twice now, and I've even thought about how it can be a cornerstone to a class about about conservational writing. So inevitably, I'm going to ask you a lot about the book, or at least about the things you discuss in the book. But let me first ask about the exigency for the book. What led you to want to write Fishing Through the Apocalypse, which is a very different kind of fishing book than we usually see? Yeah, well, that actually goes back to when I was a kid as well, because, you know, I, I mentioned growing up around all these fields and woods and streams, but the main creek that flowed through um, some family property that had actually been in the family for four generations. I never fished and I never thought about fishing. 
And the reason why is it was biologically dead for, for all four of those generations due to acid mine drainage. But um, later, I was doing some research on a restoration effort on that creek for a story I was writing. And suddenly I started looking back at history and I found out that at one point, that creek would have been like something you found in Alaska. You know, it had shad runs, enough to support commercial fisheries. It had eel runs, it had brook trout. And I thought like, wow, like I just, I never even saw that alternate reality. And so I started thinking like, what about my fishing right now? If, if someone just plopped in, you know, an angler from another planet came, what would they think about as being really cool, but also what would be really bizarre and what would be, where is fishing actually going? So I started thinking like, all right, take off my rose colored glasses and let's take a look at what fishing is like in the United States right now. And I didn't want it just to be about the kinds of fishing that we all think about, you know, like trout in a tailwater or, you know, a river runs through it. I wanted to kind of take a, maybe a more bizarre look at the possibilities for fishing. Yeah. You know, as you say that I'm reminded um, several years ago, uh, George Poveromo from uh, saltwater sportsman magazine and I were having a conversation. And one of the things he said to me, which has stuck with me is that we all need to remember that right now, when it comes to fishing, will be somebody's remember when it was kind of day that they'll all that whatever the current context is somebody's going to think of that as this is when it was good and that we have to be able to work toward making it better so that the the nostalgia the when it was isn't looking back at the bad moment of the fishing yeah absolutely and there is still that, you know, there are places where it is still a fish on every cast, you know, kind of situation. Um, but I think all of us who fish also look back on some places, you know, with a sense of loss, like, wow, it is not what it once was. Yeah, that is uh, definitely an undercurrent narrative in ev to every conversation I have about fishing anywhere in the country or around the world that, you know, it's not what it was. And that's, uh, I mean, that's why your book and, you know, the work you're doing at Nature Conservancy and what a lot of other people do becomes so crucial. So one of the things that's also clear in your book and also just from looking at from what you just said as well, you're a book guy. And throughout your book, you cite, I think it's 20 other fishing, hunting, and conservation books. And you also recently published a blog post review essay of sorts of about six fishing books. And in that post, you write, and I'm quoting you here, at their best, fishing books can fuel dreams about new species and destinations or shed important insights on ethics and conservation. Still, I must acknowledge there's a lot of nonsense written about fishing. I've never held the belief that waving a thin piece of graphite automatically confers grace or character. Too many anglers are content catching and celebrating non-native fish, often at the expense of native freshwater biodiversity. Reading a lot of fishing stories, it can feel a bit like golf with a fly rod. Talk to me about fishing and writing, and specifically about why you think writing about fishing is is not just always the thing for us to do hey, well yeah I, you know i i think 
part of this goes back to Norman McLean and that idea that fly fishing and religion are the same thing. And I don't think it's fair to either, right? Like it's, and it also leads to this like goofy idea that, um, that just casting a rod in itself takes you to some higher plane. And, you know, I, there was recently a, a, a podcast where a, a writer and conservationist who's done a lot of great things for freshwater called Brown Trout Sacred. And that, and with the assumption that we should not question brown trout. And, and I wrote to him and I, I said, like, I don't think brown trout are sacred. You know, they're beautiful animals. They can be native or non-native. They can be lots of things, but just automatically assuming that the brown trout is the ultimate fish. I, most anglers don't even share that belief. So I, I always, you, you know, I've read a lot about fishing and, uh, you know, a lot of books have made me question my assumptions, but some books just take certain things for granted. Um, you know, like standing in a tailwater shoulder to shoulder with a lot of you know other people all decked out and thousands of dollars worth of gear does to me honestly start to feel like golf with trout at the end, the end of it and i do it i i do it but let's be honest about what that experience is do you do you happen to know um sam snyder's book backcast the global history of fly fishing and conservation I do, yes. So Sam was one of my grad students, and uh, his dissertation actually was about fly fishing as religion and why it get ca gets cast as a religion in some yeah. way. So when you bring that up, my first thought is, yeah, that's what Sam does. And he was with Trout Unlimited for a very long time, also doing yeah. conservation work there, too. Yeah, I think in my first fishing book, I quoted my dad, who, if I can remember this right, he asked me one time, why is it that every son of a bitch who can hold a rod in one hand and a pen in the other feels obligated to write a book about it? Yeah. <laughs> there is that notion that if we're going to write and fish, we're going to we're going to always write the story. I have to also say that I love that you open your book with the Cormac McCarthy epigraph. Just shove us right out there into the dystopian mire from the outset. <laughs> all right, so I could talk books and literature with you all day long. But let's talk about fish. And I have to say that your discussion of banana trout was mind-blowing to me. I spent a lot of time thinking about emerging technology, or I do spend a lot of time thinking about emerging technologies, about post-humanism. And I never really made the connection to how I think about fish and post-humanism or post-fish. Uh, but the banana trout, which I'm sorry to say just echoes the classic, I'm going back to the Muppets again, banana sketch episode from the Muppet Show in 76. But the banana trout is a trip into the piscatorial uncanny valley. Talk to me about the banana trout and what we learn from this fish, this post fish, what you might categorize in your words as a kind of postmodern fishing. Yeah, so the, the banana trout goes by a number of names depending on where it is stocked around the country. Some people call it the golden trout, which is actually another species. Uh, some people call it the palomino trout, but it is entirely a hatchery product. So the fish, it, it, it is a rainbow trout that is bright yellow. It's a recessive gene. 
showed up in a West Virginia hatchery and someone got the idea like, hey, we could breed these and breed for this trait and anglers would like it. And in some places they're even stocked, you know, and this is kind of part of the folktale, but, you know, that there, there were complaints to the agencies like you aren't stocking this pond. And so they'd throw in a half dozen of these to show that they had because they stick out like neon yellow and like a tracer bullet almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're regarded as a, a trophy fish. Um, and that's where I, I start to get like, is this connecting to nature or is fishing just another product of you know, our postmodern world? And, you know, in my book, I explore a number of examples of that and, you know, there are pay ponds in Thailand right now where you can catch fish that are functionally extinct in the wild. You can catch a Mekong giant catfish. So there are all these weird examples where you can fish for things that that don't exist, really. Um, but the other part of that is that there is a segment of the angling, angling population that absolutely loves these things. You know, the banana trout is considered a trophy. Um, so, um, yeah, like you, you see them floating around and they're kind of garish and golden, um, and they're a trout, but they are entirely our, you know, a product of humanity. It's interesting because at least from where I'm sitting in the world of fishing, we don't see the GMO conversation in the same way we see it about food, but in fact, it is the same argument about whether these are non-GMO or GMO fish. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it will become that way more, you know, hybrid fish like the tiger trout, which is a brook brown trout hybrid. They're stocked in many places. You know, I, I know there have been efforts to create more aggressive bass. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of thought into producing a better fish for recreational angling. That, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking there's sort of that parallel conversation then, right, about the genetic modification in aquaculture toward nutritional security, toward providing protein of fish. But now we're actually shifting that in what you're saying into a conversation about also genetic modification toward the end of improvement of sport, whether it's in terms of quantity or quality. That's an interesting kind of paralleled philosophy to address there, too. It, it, it is. And I think as with aquaculture, you know, like there there isn't really a place in my mind for purism, right? Like. I, I don't see a future where we can provide protein to, you know, 8 billion people without aquaculture. And I, and there may not be a place where sport fishing exists in, in some context without some level of human manipulation. Right. But on the other hand, I think when it comes to recreational angling, you know, like, Protein is necessary for our survival. Recreational fishing, you know, like I, I would say it's necessary for me, but at, at some point we have to question, what are we after? And is it really just feeling a tug on the end of a line? I think most of us would say we want something more than that. And we don't want just fishing parks 
you know, like many golf courses where we go and we test ourselves in this contrived setting. Well, and even carrying carrying that on to the conversation a lot of ethicists have regarding hunting on, uh, you know, fenced-in property where they bring in exotic animals and you, rather than being in the actual context, you know, you're you're shooting a lion in, you know, Vermont or something like that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think that is going to end up being or needs to be an important ethical consideration that we take up in recreational fishing, too. I mean, that we're, we're talking about the ethics of what it is we do as recreation tied to a wildness in the aspect of our, our target uh, uh, object, the fish. Yeah. And, and the question about, you know, size has always been a part of fishing. But what does that mean? If you can produce a trout of any size, you know, like hybrid trout can grow faster or you can manipulate the genetics to make super trout. So what does a trophy even mean if it's something that you can pump out, put in a pond and bring someone in to catch a record? Yeah, I've been having this conversation and writing about this quite a bit lately. Uh, I hate the biggest fish question because I think it also removes the concept of experience. You know, like you mentioned the actual golden trout, which is really one of the smallest trout. And I think catching, you know, going out to California and catching a true golden trout, which may only be, you know, a six inch trout, and then going a little farther north and getting a hundred pound halibut, these are entirely different experiences and size isn't the judge on that. Um, but you know, we're, we're seeing that conversation and, you know, you, you mentioned that about the, the, the genetically produced large trophy fish. Um, I've been actually thinking about, I don't know if you know, uh, the surfer Kelly Slater, um, he built, he built a, uh, water, uh, it's like a giant wave pool to create the perfect wave and all the surfers go and try it out. And it is the perfect wave but it's not surfing. It's not the context of being in the ocean. And so, yeah, what is that question of I caught the genetically modified large brookie in a, a pond that has had no access to other genetic makeup? I mean, it's an interesting question about what, it, what the objective of fishing is. You know, one of the things with this conversation in mind that you also point out is that in the U.S., a large part of the history of American fishing has involved trying to make it so that all waters contain the same fish. Why is that, and what impact has that had on the mindset of fishing in America? And now that I say that out loud, fishing in America would make a great title for a documentary. I'm calling dibs on that, but <laughs> tell me tell me about the history of desire for the homogenous fishing. Yeah, well, I think... It's a very European mindset in a lot of ways, you know, like it, it's a subset of colonization. So when colonists arrived, as was the case in places like Australia and New Zealand, Argentina, you know, they wanted the same fishing game they had in the, you know, in their home countries. And so it, it became assumed that brown trout were, you know, were the highest form of fish, you know, something, you know, as I said earlier, exists to this day. And so, you know, fish that were considered game were elevated. Now, that wasn't always the case, and that isn't the same across cultures. And now it's not even the same with Europe. You know, Europe values the carp and coarse fishing, or what we here call rough fishing in Europe, has a long 
sporting tradition, whereas here they're considered trash fish. So, you know, these concepts of what is sporting get very ingrained. And that's what we're seeing now. And it, you know, sometimes loses all sense of reality in a way, you know, like, um, you know, it's like, oh, we consider trout good to eat, but now most people release them. I mean, the, the largemouth bass is not the hardest fighting fish in fresh water. Um, you know, a lot of people catch and release walleyes. Walleyes are clearly not the hardest fighting fish. They taste good, but people still love walleye fishing because it's f what they're familiar with. So part of it is familiarity. But I would argue if you start expanding and looking at other species, it makes for a much richer angling experience. So why do we deify trout then? I think I think it's tradition in, in a lot of ways, and and I love trout fishing, but um, you know, like native trout to me are, are much cooler than catching brown trout in a tailwater. They take you to much cooler places. Um, but there is this tradition, and you know, I guess you could say religious tradition. You know, it it becomes the sacred. Yeah, you know, like it is locked in how you do things. Well, if not religion, at least literary tradition. I mean, if we look yeah. at how much has been written about trout fishing, even after, you know, the colonization of the New World, trout fishing was always what everybody wrote about. Uh, you know, you didn't you didn't get literature of, you know, the North Fork or, you know, talking about trout. You got that. You didn't get the mud pond and the, the rough fish, right? right? So you mentioned this just now. Talk to me about the distinctions between native and non-native species and why that has become so prevalent in how we talk about fish. Talk about why, particularly given what you just said about the history of American fishing and the idea of making all the waters the same. Why are the native, non-native distinctions so important now to anglers? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a blurry line. You know, like even in mainstream media, not concerned with fishing, um, the snakehead, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay gets titled like the Frankenfish and the fish that will devour the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, that's in the New York Times. If you look at the ecological impact and the actual scientific literature and compare the brown trout and the snakehead, there's no comparison of which is more destructive to aquatic systems. It's the brown trout. And again, I, I love brown trout fishing, but I mean, the snakehead, the actual literature is not there. That is, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's just not there. So part of it is like the lens, how we view these things. And for me, I, you know, this comes down to values. I value diversity and I value diverse systems. I think there is literature that says diverse systems are more resilient. But I also just like encountering more kinds of fish. And when you manage just for one species, that's what you get. If you manage for diversity, then you have all these opportunities. And fortunately, there, you know, I, I think there are a lot of anglers that see that. You know, there have been efforts to restore native trout 
in many watersheds in the West. And that's driven by anglers. You know, Trout Unlimited has restored native fish to a lot of watersheds, despite being also about non-native trout fishing. Yeah, and I mean, it's you're right. It's such a prevalent way in which media addresses these things that we create these cultural narratives of value that become really interesting to me in terms of how you know why do we say this about snakehead and create you know vilify it in one way when the brown trout, which we you know put on the dais as being you know it's a trout, therefore it's fantastic, even though it is destructive. I think those cultural narratives become really interesting. So let's shift gears a bit, uh, put trout aside for a moment. You mentioned in the book that you are mystified by the appeal of following competitive bass fishing on TV. What mystifies you about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> one, I, I, I admit, like, watching a fishing competition, I, I mean, it, it just is not that exciting. <laughs> I, like, you know, when you're fishing... The reality is it isn't always exciting, right? That, that's part of the appeal, but there's a lot else going on. But to just watch like a segment of fishing, it, it removes the fun of it for me. And, and also it appears like they're kind of winching the fish out. You know, it becomes this like removing a lot of the steep and a lot of the all that surrounds Great Days fishing, it becomes like kind of very reductionist, like get the fish in the boat. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't get it. And part of it is also like I, I bass fish from an early age, but I've never done it really from a boat. You know, I've done the farm ponds and smallmouth bass fishing both spinning and flying and and it's an incredible amount of fun and so why you would just want to buzz out to a stump drop this worm in winch the bass out and then go on to the next it's just beyond <laughs> beyond me well given that you're saying that then and what we've been talking about um and also in your own writing you're you're really talking about the experience that they're you know almost the phenomenological kind of moment of of being there with the fish and one clearly one of the underlying currents in your work not just your book but in your articles and blog posts is the value of experience not necessarily experiences and I'm a more experienced angler than he is but in that moment of experience in the presence of that moment could you talk about that intersection between experience and fishing particularly given what you just said about bass and the effect of experience on conservation thinking? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. I, I mean, I, I, I really, I, it, part of my job, I think, is fighting against this idea that conservation can be abstract. You know, like it's just on the policy level, and we talk about ecosystems without actually walking that ecosystem. And so I, I think taking the totality of the experience and what we're actually about here and understanding that, like, I, you know, I want to know, and, and this I know is probably a quirk of me, like, why, why do I like fishing? And what is it about it? And at what point is it just 
feeding an ego? Or at what point are we doing it, this conservation, just to say we passed a bill or we protected this acre? What what is it really about at its heart? What is driving us? And let's be clear about our values. And you know, there's has been this movement in conservation, like we have to make it more about, you know, tie it more to people. And so that has to inform how we talk about it. And I say I, I'm I'm clear. I come at it because I value wildlife and I value outdoor recreation. And Maybe that doesn't sound as high-minded, but I'm not being honest. If I'm not saying that's my driver. I'm not in it to save the world. And and people get very nervous about that. Like, well, you should want to save the world. And it's like, well, that it's arrogant for one thing. <laughs> but, uh, and, and so that comes back to my experience. You know, kind of the old Ed Abbey quote, I stand for what I stand on. Um. And, uh, you know, I, I care about fishing because it is something more than just a competition. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting because that notion of conservation, and in, in you mentioned this in a sort of offhanded way, it's also kind of foundationally nostalgic. It is that moment of I want things to be the way I want them to be. And a lot of it going back to what we said before is I wanted to go back to the way I remembered it being and that that's the inherently right way for things to be. That to me is fascinating that there's the conservation operates with this foundational notion of it's got to be what it was originally. Yeah. Yeah. And then that draws the question of where is that? And, you know, there are people now saying we should return to the Pleistocene, you know, in terms of fauna and flora. And at a certain point, it, it becomes a, you know, a practical impossibility. Um, and and I, I think the other part of this, when it relates to angling, I, I should say, is recognizing, you know, we think of fishing as this monolith, right? Like we talk about hunting and fishing, but that means it actually within that, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I recognize that for some people, the competition is the driver, right? And for some people, getting wild food is the driver. So there are many motivations and many ways to go about it. Same thing with conservation. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Since we mentioned bass fishing, I want to shift just a little bit here. Talk to me about the Guadalupe bass and how we think about the Guadalupe bass very differently than we do other bass, particularly something like the peacock bass. Yeah, well, the Guadalupe bass is a native bass endemic to Texas. It's found in smaller rivers, um, and it doesn't get exceptionally large. Um, it doesn't have an industry of tournaments around it, and at one point, you know, smallmouth bass were stocked on top of it because they were deemed better. Well, now there's, you know, it, it's going back the other way where people recognize like, wow, we have this cool bass found nowhere else on the planet and that's worth protecting. And also it has a very different fishing experience. In some ways it becomes almost more like trout fishing. And, you know, there's this whole diversity of red-eye bass actually more species than we knew found in the Southeast United States. Um, and they almost sort of more like brook trout. They live in small creeks. 
you know, they aggressively take flies and fly fishing for them is like small stream trout fishing. And so part of it, again, is like there's this diversity we don't even know is there. You know, it still exists and it's been hidden in plain sight. Yeah, and I think that our language has has created that veil also, right? Because when we say bass, you know, that that's such a big umbrella term. You look at divisions like all of the species that are considered black bass and then all of the species that are considered other, you know, that term bass is almost an empty term in some way, but we've commercialized it in such a way, particularly around that kind of tournament fishing, that bass now means bass rather than this big umbrella term. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like the peacock bass is actually a cichlid, like right. a you know, like tropical fish you would find in a pet store. And and I've got one of my weirder quests has been to fish hot springs around the West looking for the weird different cichlids you find there. I've never found a peacock bass in the Western U.S., but I've found all kinds of other weird fish there. That sounds like a challenge for somebody to start placing them there, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I want to ask about another species uh, because I'm very intrigued by this species and I think a lot of anglers are intrigued. Talk to me about sturgeon, particularly you had some interesting sturgeon experiences, particularly with the white sturgeon. I want to I want to hear some thoughts about sturgeon. And I have I have my own reasons I've written about sturgeon. Uh, we have sturgeon right near my house um, on the Suwannee River, but you can't fish for them. And so sturgeon are always one of those sort of if we had dinosaurs, that's, you know, we've got sturgeon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sturgeon, you know, they get very large and I live near the snake river, which has white sturgeon. And in my stretch of the, the snake river, because of dams, um, the sturgeon can't reproduce successfully. So they are um, constantly being stocked by our power company in conjunction with our fishing game department. And so they, they can live, live out their lives in the river. They just can't reproduce. Um, now, during the course of my book, I, I took up a lot of different forms of fishing that I was not familiar with, but um, small streams are kind of my native anglers habitat, if you will. And, but what I found is that usually I could adapt and usually catch the fish, but a big white sturgeon out of the Snake River was one that eluded me. You know, like I'm not this like big fish, mega tackle kind of guy. And and partly I, I think I just lacked the patience to, to sit there without really knowing. I, I could sit there for a long time if I think I'm doing it right, but... Like, I wasn't sure I was really on top of So, um, I still have not caught a really big sturgeon out of the, the Snake River. Um, that is where I ended up going. You, you know, then someone said, like, well, you should just go out to Schwartz's Pond. I'm like, what's that? He said, well, you pay this guy 40 bucks, and you go fish his pond, and there are hundreds of sturgeon in there. Well, I thought, that's... You know, if we're talking about the apocalypse, that's too weird to pass up. So I did that. And and it was like a bizarre experience. Have you been out to Bonneville Hatchery? I have. Yeah. Yeah, that to me is fascinating where they're where they're breeding the sturgeon. I, I had the opportunity to go out there a couple of years ago. Uh, that to me was just fantastic. Yeah. 
So, you know, there are two concepts you introduce in the book that I really want to ask you about. And the first is a term that personally I had never heard before, though the concept is quite, quite familiar, and that's rough fish. Now, I think most of us are more familiar with the adjacent term trash fish, but rough fish is about more than identifying a fish as not valuable to the angler. It's specifically about reclaiming the value of the traditional trash fish. Could you talk about rough fish and the rough fish movement? Yeah, so there is this notion that is entirely cultural that some fish are value game and some are trash, you know, as I talked about earlier. But rough fish, and rough fish can be used as that term, but a group of anglers have reclaimed it and said, hey, these fish are actually really cool. You know, like suckers and gar and bowfin. You know, they, they fight hard. A lot of times they're wary and they can offer a really great fishing experience. And so there is a, you know, informal movement, if you will, to like kind of reclaim these fish as something cool. Again, you know, it's not the same across cultures. Indigenous Americans valued suckers as a, a source of food. Um, so it isn't set in stone. And what I see happen, and I've actually seen this happen on, you know, fishing areas. A kid catches a fish, very excited, reels it in. Oh, oh, oh. And then it's a, a sucker. And still excited. And then a parent says, oh, it's just a sucker. Trash fish. And then, so that is how we pass it on. It isn't like some objective analysis of what's the best fish. Until that moment, even the adults were all excited. You know, everything about that experience up until the moment you see the fish is cool. And so why not just take it one step farther and just say it's still cool when that fish is in hand, especially since you were planning to release the fish anyhow. What What's the difference? And so that that's all I'm saying is like actually take a step back and look at this fish. Um, I had the National Geographic photographer, Joel Sartori, out fishing with me to catch a fish, catch a sucker, a large scale sucker and take a picture of it. And Joel takes these pictures where the, the animal is on a black or white background. So it's just the animal. And I put that fish up, you know, that sucker up in groups of anglers and say, tell me this thing doesn't look cool. And it, it looks cool. And, and so it's just like, take a step back and question your assumptions. And what is it about it at that moment of capture that makes it less cool? Yeah, you know, I shouldn't be surprised that a community has unfolded around rough fishing, but it really does intrigue me because it, it flips the whole standard trophy fish aspect right on its head. It changes what the whole objective is rather than target species, target size. Uh, that, that, that all fascinates me. Um, and, you know, particularly you know, some of the tournaments that I fish, they'll add that kind of fishing is almost a joke, uh, like the trash can slam prize. Uh, you know, and that has always fascinated me. Why, why are we making this something different here and demeaning it? So, I said I, there were two concepts that you introduced there that I would rough fishing being one. 
The other is micro fishing. And this is another kind of fishing that completely flips the value. We were talking about size a minute ago, but this just really flips the value of traditional recreational fishing approaches on its head. Talk to me about the whole idea behind micro fishing. Yeah, and, and it's almost impossible to even talk about it without laughing, right? So it's kind of the art of catching small fish. And, um, you know, I, I had a, another podcaster who, like, wanted to interview me about microfishing. He spent, like, 10 minutes setting it up, like, emphasizing to his listeners that he would never do it. You know, like, yeah, you know, just to be clear, like, because this idea of size is so ingrained. So we, we've already talked about that there are many motivations for fishing, right, and many ways to go about it. And so you can't say the fight of a three-inch shiner is a thing, but there are, you know, fooling a fish is part of the fun. And fooling a fish on a, you know, size 32 or smaller hook with something that looks like a magician's wand um, has its own set of you know, enthusiasts. And it traces back to Japan where there is, it's called Tanago fishing. And Tanago is a kind of fish. And the goal is to catch one, a fish, a Tanago that fits on a one yen coin, which is the size of a penny. Super small requires extreme levels of patience. In the US, it's grown out of people keeping lifeless of fish they've caught. And the reality is most fish are quite small. Most fish species are very, very small. You know, the darters, the shiners, the sculpins. And so they saw these Tenago techniques and gear and thought, wow, we could apply this and really bump up our lifeless. And so they will fish for all the darters and all the shiners. And it still requires a lot of patience. Um, you know, I, I said in the book, it's difficult to take yourself seriously when you're doing that. I've since found, like, as with anything, there are people who do. You know, like, <laughs> there are people who take microfishing way too seriously. But I, I have done it. I've found it engrossing. You know, it's very... You have to be extremely present because it's all sight fishing. It, you know, it's impossible to just cast out and catch a micro fish. I mean, or nearly impossible. But so you're sight fishing and you have this, everything's miniaturized. And so you have to be focused, but you're also aware that other people could see you doing this and you have to come up with an explanation, right? <laughs> like, you know, like you, you need, know fishing right yeah. <laughs> yeah like and i find myself saying like you know like oh i'm in a contest to see how many species of idaho fish i can catch which right. i'm a scientist <laughs> trust like, me it doesn't exist but like I, I like you you have this compelling need to explain yourself or like you fear people might like call you in like or something <laughs> Yeah, to me, it's just fascinating that because it just changes the way we think about fishing. You know, I'm going to go out and catch a trophy. Well, when the trophy is, like you said, an inch and a half, two inches, three inches long, most people aren't going to identify that as a trophy. So you mentioned life listers, and that's a concept that comes into fishing from birding. The idea of maintaining an ever-expanding list of species that you catch as an angler. It's not something that a lot of anglers do, but it's becoming more and more popular. I've got two friends who are serious life listers. Uh, my friend James Hall, who's editor at Bassmaster Magazine, 
He's got over 200 species of fish in 12 different countries. And my friend Paul Van Reenen, who owns Unfair Lures, he's claiming 516 now or maybe more species on three different continents. I'm fascinated by this kind of collecting. Could you talk about life listing and what it brings to the sport? Yeah, I, you know, I think as with birding, you know, even within life listing, there are multiple motivations. And I like the concept because it gets me out you know, new experiences, new places, and new fish. For some people, it really is, you know, like they are compulsive collectors. And so they, you know, like there's one guy, very you know, big in the life listing community. They, at one point, he was keeping track of every beer he drank. He was a power lifter. And, you know, he like obsessively documented his power lifting. And he also, you know, happened to casually enjoy fishing. And then he realized, like, hey, I could apply this to fishing. And so I think there's an interest in fishing, but also this, like, ticking urge that, that you find with the more competitive birders. And, you know, I think there are, you know, half a dozen or so life listers who have crossed the thousand species threshold, which you cannot do that without a fanatical devotion to ticking species. It becomes something else at that level. And um, there's a guy named Steve Wozniak who's crossed 2,000 species. Um, so, uh, um, and, and I'll never reach that. You know, I'm closing in on 200 species, but I'll go to a place for a new species. I won't park on a reef with a micro rod and like for two weeks. I, I mean, that's beyond my level of obsessiveness you know i it's the whole idea of life listening fascinates me also and it's also you know given that we were talking about experience it's also a mechanism for expanding experience you know and I, i think that's a lot of the reason why for instance the international game fish association created the concept of uh slams is so that you're not always targeting the same two or three species that you're expanding your experience with other species as well and life listing is sort of the 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 mondo slam it's how many different can we get in in one lifetime and to me it's just an interesting concept to expand experience as well yeah i think at its best that's what it what it's about like you you find yourself looking up like what are species new species I could catch when I'm in this location. And I'm I, I'm very goal-oriented, you know, around everything. You know, like I sent lists of books I want to read and places I want to visit. And like I, I'm very list-oriented, like in advance. Like it help, you know, kind of keeps my uh imagination alive, you know, like at play times when I can't go someplace new. So I, I get that. Like I'm currently trying to catch all the cutthroat subspecies and trying to catch a fish in every state. And and for me, it, it's like about partly about dreams, which I think is a big part of the fishing experience, really. You know, like when we're not out there, we're dreaming of being out there. Yeah, I mean, in, in that life that life listing context, I now see the appeal of things like Finn Montaigne's reeling in Russia even more. Right, you're gonna go to these places where nobody thinks about going to fish, just to experience the place and the kind of fishing. Um, I also don't know why, but life listing makes me think about uh, Kirk Wallace Johnson's book, The Feather Thief. 
which from my perspective ought to be on every trout fisherman's must read list, but it's got that same kind of collector mentality as life listening, almost to the extent of like obsession and train spotting too. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the notion of obsession is fascinating to me. And, you know, I, I love to do, you know, several different activities, but I also, I lack that like singular focus that I see some life listers have, you know, like where they like every minute of a fishing trip is what's the next species. You know, it, it, uh, it's fascinating to me, like how far some people will take activities, right? Rather, whether it's collecting or making salmon flies or fishing or birding or you name it. Yeah. And in some ways for me, that kind of undercuts the purpose for being out there, which is to do nothing, you know, to just <laughs> yeah. let things unfold. Right. So one of the most powerful statements you make in fishing through the apocalypse is that, and this is a quote from the book, ensuring the future of fishing ultimately will require that all species are managed. It will require a cultural shift from anglers, but ultimately it will benefit the sport. Unpack that for me a bit. Well, part of that is, um, you know, this recurring theme in our conversation where, you know, a few species get all the attention. And I, I think part of the future of angling rests with, you know, we're increasingly having to justify why we do it. And I, I think just saying that we're only about a few species won't cut it. And, you know, as we go forward in the future and showing that anglers are looking at the diversity of fish and looking at the health of rivers and the health of our oceans and not just paying lip service to that will be a part of what we have to do to uh, continue to justify it. And I, I have no problem with with angling from an ethical perspective. I think it's one of humanity's oldest pursuits and I, I think it should be a part of you know humanity's future but part of that means like it can't just be dumping trout everywhere i i don't think that is justifiable you know that reminds me of something my friend jeff angers who's president for the center for sport fishing policy said and that's that fishing shouldn't be political but it is political. You say something similar when you write, water does not recognize our political boundaries. Your work, though, is inextricably bound to politics, things like management policies, the Clean Water Act that you write about a lot, local and national legal matters, and so on. Why do you suppose conservation and fishing management have become so political? Oh, I, I, I think partly it's because there are so many people and you know, it is not an unlimited resource. And we do have political boundaries and, and different philosophies for, you know, what the, the future should should look like. And, you know, I I am someone, like, I am not a political hobbyist. Like, I, I don't, like, post politics on social media. In a lot of ways, the topic is uninteresting to me. Like, I, like what could be less interesting? But, on the other hand, it affects the things I love and it affects the future of the things I love. So I have to be involved. But I think part of that is not thinking about politics as a sport, 
but thinking about again, what do we want? Uh, you know, what do we really want? And at times, I think that transcends the traditional political process. Like, okay, you know, we, I may not be able to affect the Clean Water Act at this point in time, but what can I influence? Yeah, I mean, that whole idea of just being able to, where do I fit in that political conversation to me is is a really interesting kind of way of thinking about the connections between the politics and the water and the fish. So before we wrap this up and I get to the traditional wrap-up question, I do want to ask you if you could talk for a moment about your experience with the Fishing for Science program at Palmyra Atoll. Uh, it's a program, if I'm not mistaken, which you were the first writer to participate in that. Can you tell us about Palmyra, am I pronouncing that right, and about that program? Yeah, so Palmyra Atoll is an uninhabited island string a thousand miles south of Hawaii. It was used as a naval base in World War II, but it never had, as far as anyone can determine, indigenous inhabitants. Um, and so in, in some ways, not every way, it, it's pristine. Especially now, there were rats on the island. They have since been removed. But um, it's this atoll, and the Nature Conservancy purchased it and now co-manages it with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And there is a research program to look at giant bluefin valley and whether recreational fishing for them is sustainable. Fishing for them recreationally and tagging these fish and tracking them. And um, the Nature Conservancy was looking for someone to go. And because seats are limited, they were looking for someone to write about it. And that had to be the same person. And so um, that became me. <laughs> you know, and, you know one of the, when that call came in, it was like, you know, we, we need you to go to Palmyra Atoll and you have to participate in the research. And, oh, what's the research? Are you be fishing for traveling. <laughs> that was why I was when you wonder if like, it was some kind of elaborate practical joke. It's like, okay, like you have to be punking me. And, but uh, it, it was real. And, you know, it was every bit as, you know, one of those where you're pinching yourself, um, you know, absolutely exhaust, exhausting and frenetic and, you know, fishing 10 hours a day. Um, but um, I, I mean, it's, really a magical place you know hundreds of thousands of seabirds giant coconut crabs um sharks everywhere sea turtles everywhere it, yeah like from an experience standpoint it, it will be uh, one of those like you know on my deathbed if i live a long life i'll still be thinking of that <laughs> I'm so jealous. Tell me about bluefin trevelli. I mean, the GTs, the giant trevelli, are the ones that get all the press. Tell me about a bluefin trevelli. Yeah, bluefin is a smaller version. They are this deep, speckled blue, um, hard-fighting fish. Um, we would often catch the smaller bluefin trevelli by trolling for them. You have the rod in our head. Just trawling small squiggles. Bigger bluefin trevally with little popper. And I find them one of the most striking fish. You know, I love brightly colored fish. And they would just like come right out of the reef and smash this popper and just like such exciting fishing. 
Yeah, I, I, that's that to me is just the kind of dream opportunity. Um, and I could go on talking about all of this endlessly. I absolutely love this. This is the kind of conversation that gets me jazzed. And now, of course, I want to add Palmyra to my destination desire list. But I suppose in light of our audience's attention capacity, we should probably reel this conversation in a bit. But before we do, I want to ask you our traditional wrap-up question. The problem is it's probably a tough question to ask someone with your background and with your life list. But given all of that experience, what is the Matthew L. Miller grail fish? What's the one fish that's out there waiting for you, that bucket list fish? Oh, the grail fish. That is such a tough one. And I, I have so many. And, you know, like there are some obvious ones like marble trout, which native trout in, in Europe. But I would have to say kind of the confluence of my interest, it would be the Cuban gar. So I, I love gar, you know, they're a you know, so-called rough fish. I've caught all the U.S. varieties, and each one has been a, a memorable experience. But the Cuban gar is found only in Cuba, poorly known. Um, it's a freshwater fish there. So gar, you know, like sturgeon, a primitive fish. They have these sharp teeth and a sharp snout. But um, the Cuban gar, you know, like there is – like kind of a flipping Hemingway, yeah. You know, like I <laughs> imagine I could I could see Hemingway's house there. You know, I, I've read all of Hemingway, but it wouldn't be after the you know the big saltwater species I'd be looking for a gar in Cuba's freshwater. For me, that kind of clicks all the boxes. That's fantastic. I, I have to say that is the first time that a gar has come up on the broadcast as a grail fish. Uh, our waters here where I am, of course, all the rivers are just full of gar. Uh, but yeah, the Cuban gar, that is that is great. I wow. I want to actually be there and film that when you get when you get that fish. That would be fantastic. Matt, this has been great. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be on the broadcast. I could I could go on with this conversation days on end, um, particularly if we were sitting on the water somewhere and had a good bourbon between us or something. But uh this is exactly the kind of conversation I love. And thank you so much for the work you're doing at Nature Conservancy. Thank you so much for having written this book, which, like I said to me, just it's one of the best books I've seen in decades. So thanks so much, Matt, for being on the broadcast. Well, well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope we can get on the water someday. That would be fantastic. All right, all right. It is time for a bourbon break. We all know how important taking a break can be, even when we're taking a break from something we love, like fishing, and using that break to engage with something else we love, like bourbon. So this is more of a love break than anything else, because we loves us some bourbon. And this week, I want to share that love and talk about Chestnut Farms bourbon. Now, I love it when friends and family give me bourbon. I mean, I love it when they pour some bourbon and hand it to me, especially when I didn't ask or have to stand by their liquor cabinet flashing my puppy dog eyes. But I love it even more when they gift me a bottle of bourbon and not an open bottle, but a fully closed, unopened, brand new, still full bottle. When folks do that, well, that's mighty nice and a great way to share the love with me. But I got to admit, even if they hate me and give me a bottle of bourbon, I'm still okay with that as well. 
In fact, I'd like to start a new tradition whereby folks that are angry with me or who just flat out dislike me, they give me bottles of bourbon out of spite. Yeah, spite bottles. We need to make that thing happen. That way, I'm getting love bottles and hate bottles. Nonetheless, I did receive a brand new bottle of chestnut bourbon, chestnut farms bourbon the other day, and I was very excited by it because it was a bourbon I had not previously sampled. So before I popped open the bottle, I tried to find out about the bourbon. But here's the thing. You can't really find out much about this bourbon. So I can't really tell you that much about it or its story. You see, there's no Chestnut Farms website. I poked around online, and according to the Whiskey Jug, one of my favorite whiskey information sites, they did much a much more comprehensive bit of digging into Chestnut Farms, and they found out that not only does Chestnut Farms not have a website, they also don't have any social media presence, and they don't even advertise. It's like they're a shadow distillery. Whiskey Jug attributes Chestnut Farms to Clear Spring Distilling Company, but there's really no information on them either, other than, again, as reported by Whiskey Jug, that Clear Springs Distilling Company is owned by Sazerac, a massive alcohol beverage company run out of New Orleans and Louisville. This is the same company that owns Buffalo Trace and a few other companies. But Clear Springs Distilling is the company that makes the Costco house brand bourbon. I didn't even know Costco had a house brand bourbon. And now, in some perverse, masochistic kind of way, I want to try it. Now, Whiskey Jug dug even further into the mystery of Chestnut Farms and reports that they make Chestnut Farm bourbon at the Barton 1792 Distillery, another one of Sazerac's holding. This is the distillery that makes 1792 bourbon, and it makes Trader Joe bourbon. Wait a minute. Trader Joe's has its own bourbon? This Chestnut Farms bourbon is keeping some un-bourbon-like bourbon company with Trader Joe's bourbon and Costco bourbon. Very odd company indeed. But despite this shrouded pedigree, I did crack, it crack open the bottle and poured a bit into my favorite Glencairn glass and gave it a whirl. Now, keep in mind that we have no idea what the mash bill is, so there's no hint at what the taste will be from the information on the bottle. We do know it's a 90-proof bourbon, and I've seen it list for around 50 bucks, which seems a bit on the high end to me for a whiskey that's doing its best to remain anonymous. I have to say, though, that the bottle deserves a little credit. It's a classic bourbon long neck bottle, but etched into the glass is a white sketch of a horse. I assume we're supposed to make the connection between Kentucky bourbon and Kentucky horse racing, like Kentucky Derby. But I got to say, the etching, upon closer inspection, looks like it was drawn in art class by a sixth grade girl with her pony fascination. Her folks probably have dozens of similar looking drawings taped up on their refrigerator or at their places of employment. That is, this ain't no George Stubbs art horse. That said, though, the bottle shows off the whiskey well, and it has an eye of amber. And when the light hits the bottle, it shimmers nicely. Now, the nose feels light but it's got some hints of a corn-heavy mash bill with a sweet scent dominating the nose. There's corn here and caramel and a bit of vanilla and a tinge of fruit. And there's a little spiciness that might suggest a higher rye content, but it seems to be lurking in the background. The palate opens slow, but it is dominated by that spice that was creeping around in the nose. The taste is deeper than the nose, but not enough to seem disassociated from the nose. There's that spiciness and then some of that fruit that comes across and dark cherries and that caramel and vanilla. And then the oak shows up in the palate as well. But it's not been evident in the nose. So the oak is kind of an added bonus in the, in the palate. 
Now, the finish doesn't stick around long, and what is there is pretty thin. The spice still dominates, but a touch of mint seems to linger in the finish, along with the oak and a faint memory of sweetness. I have to say, this isn't a very memorable bourbon. It seems thin, and the taste is nothing dynamic. And at 50 bucks a bottle, there are plenty of other bourbons in that price range with way more personality. That's not to say that there's something bad with the Chestnut Farms bourbon, but it is to say that there's nothing that makes you want to go get another bottle. Yeah, the horsey picture looks good on the bottle, and the bottle looks good on the shelf, but that ain't a reason to buy a $50 bottle of bourbon. I will say, too, that given the lightness of the Chestnut Farms bourbon, I don't think this bourbon is what you want for mixing cocktails. Any flavor it has will get drowned out in the mixers. It's okay sipping bourbon, particularly if you're not a fan of drinking bourbon neat simply because it's already light without adding ice, water, or mixers. And those, my friends, are my thoughts about Chestnut Farms bourbon, that secretive little bourbon that still wants you to see it on the shelf. As a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, or in this case, gifted to me by my family. And my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how, developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alleys, speakeasies. And speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Crackers Bar and Grill in Crystal River, Florida. It's a place I love to hit after a day on the water fishing. Those magnificent grass flats outside the mouth of Crystal River for snook, reds, trout, it's also a place I love to stop by after a day of diving the springs at Crystal River or snorkeling with the manatees back over there at Three Sisters. Cold beer, great mixed drinks, and some fan-freaking-tastic fried shrimp. And you have to try the fish dip when you're sitting outside at the bar. Trust me, a bowl of fish dip, a great bourbon, that atmosphere, and I promise you, you will not need to go back to work after lunch. And so you know, I drank to your health and company. I drank to your health alone. I drank to your health so many times, I nearly ruined my own. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Let's get back on the water. Ah, yes, indeedy do. It is time for this week's top 10 list. And since in the last episode, I counted down my top 10 instructional fishing books, I thought this week I'd count down my top 10 devotional books, or the books that tell the stories of fishing, those books that really kind of amp up the, the idea of fishing. Now, I'm not going to separate the nonfiction essayistic books from the fictional books for this list, though maybe I should, since honestly, it was really hard to limit the list to 10 books, given the near infinite numbers of fishing books out there. But I tried to make this list about books that are specifically centered around fishing, not books where fishing just happens as a kind of backdrop to a story. That is, in this list, fishing is not a setting. It is the subject. And even that makes this list almost impossible. So many fishing books have been written since the 1400s that the pool to pick from is immense. And the exponential growth of the numbers of fishing books since the 1950s has been amazing. McLean, Gerich, Hemingway, and so many others inspired so many writers to want to be fishing writers. Now, I mentioned it last week, but I'll say it again. William Humphrey, in his fantastic book, My Moby Dick, sets the distinction for literary categorization and the importance of the literary fishing tradition. He explains, and this is a quote from Humphrey, quote, 
The literature of angling falls in two genres, the instructional and the devotional. The former is written by fishermen who write and the latter by writers who fish. So in this list, I'll look at the devotional side of things, those books that pay homage to the art of fishing. These aren't the how-to fishing books. These are the let's tell great stories about fishing kind of books. Yeah, and of course, we learn from them. We learn philosophies. We learn how to think about fishing. But these aren't the instructionals. These are the devotionals. Now, my dad once said, and this is an anecdote I use at the beginning of my first fishing book, my dad asked me why it is that everyone who can hold a rod in one hand and a pen in the other feels obligated to write a story about what's going on with the hand with the rod. That is, he wanted to know why so many people feel like they can write a fishing book. And I'm not going to separate in this conversation saltwater from freshwater, marlin from trout, it's all here. And yeah, we have to recognize that there are way more trout-focused books out there than there are saltwater-focused books. And a lot of that literature of the trout has created and circulated the cultural hierarchies of trout fishing and dry fly fishing as the pinnacle of the fishing world. But there's still a lot of great other books out there. And man, there's so many fantastic writers that are not on this list for this week. Sparse Gray Hackle, Ted Williams, Zane Gray, A.W. Demick, Carlos Bentos, Nick Lyons, Ted Leeson, James Duncan, Howell Raines. Man, I could go on endlessly about all the great writers and great books and easily make this list a top 20 or a top 100. But for the sake of your attention, which I'm probably already stretching out now, I'm going to keep the list to my really top 10 my books that I love the most, which you should understand is a top 10 that sits atop a top 100 that are themselves worthy of much attention. I mean, seriously, how am I offering a list of the 10 best devotional fishing books and not including Dimmick's Book of Tarpon? It's more than a classic. It's a work of art. But alas, we mustn't play with the boundaries, so you're getting 10 books and no more. So let's kick this off with Fen Montang's Reeling in Russia, an American angler in Russia. Montang is an award-winning journalist, and in 1996, he took off on a 100-day, 7,000-mile journey across Russia with his fly rod. This is the story of that adventure from the moment he starts off in northwestern Russia on the Solovetsky Islands, a remote archipelago that was the birthplace of Stalin's gulag. He ends up half a world away fishing for steelhead trout on the Kamchatka Peninsula on the shores of the Pacific. It's a great adventure and a great insight into post-communist Russia. I absolutely love this book. All right, at number nine, let's go with one of the most profound trout writers out there, and that's Robert Traver and his classic Trout Madness. Robert Traver is the pen name of John D. Volker, who was a well-known lawyer, author, and fly fisherman from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He published quite a few fishing books, but his Trout Madness and Trout Magic stand out as his best work. Though in 2001, uh, Nick Lyons uh, edited and published the collection Traver on Fishing, a treasury of Robert Traver's finest stories and essays about fishing for trout that brought together a lot of his more famous short stories. By the way, Traver published his first short story about a bear when he was 12 years old. Trout Madness was Traver's fifth book, and it's made up of 21 stories about life, a life of fishing. These are hilarious stories that shed a lot of light on the glories of trout fishing. Of all of Traver's stuff, it's worth reading. But all of his stuff is worth reading. But Trout Madness is one of the best trout books ever written. All right, at number eight, how about that classic, Blues, by John Hersey. 
Now, Hersey was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and Blues was a national bestseller when it came out in 1987. It's written in the style of Isaac Walton's Complete Angler as a dialogue between a fisherman and a stranger who are exploring fishing and how fishing has been such an integral part of humanity. Hersey draws a lot on his own passion for fishing to get at a larger view of fishing. It's a beautiful book written and one that it's beautifully written book is what I meant to say. And one that makes you think a lot about why we fish. If you don't know this book, no matter what kind of fishing you're into, you really should. It will give you some great perspective as to why we fish. All right, at number seven, I feel like we need to include something for the kids, or at least the kids and all of us, especially since we need to be recruiting more youngsters into fishing. So at number seven, I'm going to include not just one of my all-time favorite children's books, but a book that is also one of my all-time favorite fishing books. It's a book I've written about in one of my own books because it's been that important to me as a reader of fishing literature. And I'm talking about Dr. Seuss's McGillicott's Pool. The book tells the story of an idealistic boy, Marco, who, by the way, appeared 10 years earlier from McGillicott's Pool in Dr. Seuss's first book, which was called And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Now, Marco enthusiastically hypothesizes the possibilities of fishing a small pond on Farmer McGillicott's property. He imagines the pond connected to a vast system of aquifers and underground rivers, connected, he fantasizes, across the planet, even into the ocean, and he dreams of an untold number of exotic specimens he might hook and catch in this pool. His aquatic menagerie is a hallmark of Seuss's creative genius and his his prognostic ability to imagine alien ichthyology ahead of anyone. It asks us to consider the very idea of what we understand the essence of fish and fishing to be. I know what I want to catch the fish that goes glurk and a thingamajigger and a fish so big, if you know what I mean, that he makes a whale look like a tiny sardine. Marco's hopefulness resonates with a young angler's idealism and enthusiasm. Marco wants to catch fish. However, Marco's enthusiasm faces a challenge from Farmer McGillicott, who calls Marco a fool for trying to catch a fish in this pool. The pool, he tells Marco, is too small and filled with junk others have dumped in it over the years, boots, bottles, tin cans. Yet McGillicott does not dissuade Marco, who recites for McGillicott an inventory of all the fish he imagines he might be able to catch in the pool and because of the connections it has to other waters. I am a firm believer that Marco ought to be adopted as the patron saint of all anglers. All right, I could go on about Seuss and Marco for hours, but let's move on. At number six, let's look to Thomas McGuane, The Longest Silence, A Life in Fishing. Man, what a great book. It's a collection of McGuane's essays about a lifetime spent fishing. The 33 essays in The Longest Silence covers waters from tarpon fishing of Florida to salmon in Iceland to bonefish in Mexico, trout in Montana. And throughout the essays, we meet some great characters from McGuane's fishing life and follow along for some really great fishing adventures. The book shares McGuane's experiences and they are conveyed in reverent and hilarious language. It really is a book that gets at the fishing way of life, particularly if you've got a sense of humor about it. All right, at the midway point, let's go with one of the most iconic fishing books, one of the most iconic fishing stories ever told, and I am talking about Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. And you are already probably reacting, thinking, how in the hell can The Old Man in the Sea be at number five when it's clearly the pinnacle of fishing literature? Well, it's up there, I admit. And like I said, top 10 of this list is the top 10 of a much longer 
longer list, this all sits at the top of a very high totem pole. So yeah, Old Man in the Sea is number five, but number five is hundreds or maybe thousands uh, is pretty damn good. I should note too that obviously it's not Hemingway's only fishing book. Think Islands in the Stream, for example. And it's even his short stories sit atop the fishing literary ladder. Just think Nick Adams. Of course, you know the story of the old man in the sea and the old man's battle with the monster marlin on a hand line. Published in 1952, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1953, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as to why the Nobel Committee gave Hemingway the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. It really is a phenomenal fishing book. But in today's list, it's sitting halfway down the pole. So then, at number four, I'm going to throw you a curveball. And I'm going to point to a book that has not yet been published, but one that I have an advanced copy of. I've got the new book, and frankly, it's the best he's written. I'm talking, of course, about John Gierich, who is unquestionably the best fly fishing and trout writer writing today, and he's been doing it for quite a while. John Gierich is the author of more than 20 books about fly fishing. His writing has appeared in Field and Stream, Grace Sporting Journal, Fly Rod and Reel, and a bunch of other magazines. He has become the voice of the trout essay style, and his writing has done more to inspire writers and readers about fly fishing than just about any other writer out there. His new book, All the Time in the World, blends his beautiful description of the art of fly fishing with his fantastic sense of humor as he describes the joys and frustrations of fly fishing. The essays in this book tell stories from Gerich's home waters on the front range of the Rockies in Colorado to fishing stories from meccas all over North America from fishing lodges in Alaska to memories of the local creek in the Midwest where he grew up. This book's going to be remembered as one of the best fishing books ever written. You heard it here first. And I will say that the second chapter, I think it's the second chapter, the one about dry fly fishing. And yeah, okay, it's Garage, so a lot of them are about dry fly fishing. But I think it's the second chapter. It may actually be the best thing ever written about dry fly fishing. It's beautiful, poignant, and a vivid chapter. I will admit that I started writing about fishing in part because when I first encountered his writing more than 30 years ago, I was so amazed at what he was able to do with his narratives that I knew I wanted to learn to do that too. So yes, when it comes out, get a copy of John Garrich's All the Time in the World, and I bet you dime to a dollar that it will become one of your favorite fishing books too. All right, at number three, we're getting into the iconic, the Olympians, as though Hemingway was in Gerich or not Olympians. But at number three, I have to have Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It. And yes, I'm talking about the book, not the amazing movie, just the book. You know, but I wonder now if we can actually separate the two. If folks can think about the book without the images of the 1992 Robert Redford film. For those of you who have forgotten, though, let me remind you that McLean's book is not a novel. It's not one big narrative like the movie projects. It's a collection of short stories, many of which Redford wove together to create the singular narrative of the film. And yes, we recall all those famous lines from the book by way of the movie that Redford pulled from the book. Quotes like, eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over the rocks from the basement of time. On some of those rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. Or how about, in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing, and so many others. So yeah, I love the River Runs Through It book. Plus, Norman McLean was indeed an English professor, so of course I like him. What could be better than another fishing professor? 
A professor, a real professor, says Paul of Norman. All right, at number two, I'm going to cheat a little because my second most favorite fishing book is really a collection of some of the stories that were mostly printed in the Saturday Evening Post. And I am speaking of Philip Wiley's Crunch and Desk stories. Wiley wrote 69 Crunch and Desk stories for the Saturday Evening Post about the adventures of Captain Crunch Adams, captain of the charter boat Poseidon, and his mate and best friend Des Smith. The stories were adapted for a brief television series, and in 1941, by the way, Wiley became vice president of International Game Fish Association, the IGFA, and for many years he was responsible for writing IGFA rules and reviewing world record claims. The Crunch and Death stories are just great fishing adventure stories. And hey, it makes sense that Wiley would write adventure stories because in addition to Crunch and Death, his portfolio includes the 1930 book Gladiator, which was a partial inspiration for Superman comics. He also wrote The Savage Gentleman, which is often identified as being, this is a quote from somewhere, replicated to an uncanny degree in the pulp character Clark Doc Savage. Man, I loved Doc Savage books when I was a kid. And he wrote When Worlds Collide, which helped inspired, help inspire Alex Raymond's comic strip Flash Gordon. But Crunch and Deaths are fishing adventures from the waters of Florida and the Caribbean, and they are pure fun. I love them. And even though the Crunch and Deaths collection only includes 22 of the original 69, the collection gives you a great look at the characters and their adventures. I will admit, though, that after reading the collection, I wanted more Crunch and Deaths. So I went to the library and pulled the archives of the Saturday Evening Post and made copies of all 69 stories so I could get the full picture. Just great stories, and the collection is undoubtedly one of my all-time favorite fishing books. All right, that brings me to my all-time favorite fishing book, and I am betting that this is going to catch you a bit off guard, that this isn't a book you either know about or would have somehow placed ahead of most of these previous nine on my list. But before I get to that book, let's get a recap of the other nine amazing books in this week's list. At number 10, we had Fen Montang's Reeling in Russia, an American angler in Russia. At nine, Robert Travers' Trout Madness. At number eight, John Hersey's Blues. At seven, Dr. Seuss's McGillicott's Pool. At six, Thomas McGuane, The Longest Silence, A Life in Fishing. At five, Papa Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. At four, John Gerich, All the Time in the World. At three, Norman McLean's River Runs Through It. And at number two, Philip Wiley's Crunch and Desk. And that brings us to my all-time favorite fishing book. Like I said, it's probably not a book you either know about or would have thought about for this list, but it is indeed a great fishing book. And I'm talking about George Orwell's Coming Up for Air. Yes, that's right. George Orwell, the masterful British writer who gave us Animal Farm in 1984. Coming Up for Air was published in 1939 and it meditates on the impending outbreak of World War II. The protagonist, George Bowling, is a middle-aged man with a very uneventful life. And as he worries about the looming war, he wins a small pot of money at a horse race and decides not to tell his wife about his winnings. Instead, he plans to sneak away for a few days to, you guess it, go fishing. The book is a nostalgic narrative about childhood dreams and the desire to go fishing. Yeah, sure, it's got Orwell's philosophical inquiries into politics, war, fascism, and such, but it's a fishing book. Trust me on this. I am the fishing professor. I know these things. And so, yeah, coming up for air, my all-time favorite fishing book. 
And so those are my thoughts about devotional fishing books, the books that tell our fishing stories, that show our devotion to the fishing life. And yes, this list could have been at least five times as long, but that's just not feasible for a podcast. Maybe I'll do a list called the professor's top 10 fishing books that didn't make the fishing professor's top 10 fishing books list. Of course, I'm sure I missed a book or two that you think should be on the list. We've all got our favorites. I'm always open to reading a new book. So if you think I've missed an important one, shoot me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com and let me know what I should be reading. As always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Let's get back to casting. Fare thee well, fare thee well, fare thee well, my fairy fay. For I'm going to Louisiana for to see my Susiana singing Polly Wally Doodle all the day. And yes, my listening crew, I believe we have found ourselves at the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. And it is time to say, fare thee well, fare thee well. And I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you have taken the time to listen to the smartest fishing podcast on the internet, if I do say so myself. I do want to thank Matt Miller for taking the time today to talk with me about his fantastic book, Fishing Through the Apocalypse and Angler's Adventures in the 21st Century, which really is a magnificent book. And I really recommend you take the time to read it and think about how we think about conservation and the future of fishing in this country. I do hope you enjoyed my discussion of Chestnut Farms Bourbon, and that speaking of books, you found some reason to turn to the pages of the books in this week's top 10 list of my all-time favorite devotional fishing books. Uh, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The tide is going out. I say again, the tide is going out. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday, as it does every Wednesday. And I hope you and all the members of the listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show, or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!